Bible or something that contains a Bible, uh, turn to uh, Psalm 46 with me, and you can stay in Psalm 46. That's what our lesson is going to be about this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to read Psalm 46. All these people that are uh, on their phone and uh, who knows what they're really doing. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple and into the depths of the seas, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with its turmoil, there is a river. Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He burns up the chariots. Stop your fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. I'm not going to be the preacher this morning. Um, You're uh, in luck there. Uh, Our regular preacher is gone to a wedding of uh, the elder who would normally uh, come and uh, take his place if we needed somebody. Uh, We thought Larry Todd uh, could be at his son's wedding without... uh, uh, thinking it inappropriate. Um, and uh, <laughs> Rick has gone with the youth to uh, Texas, and Cade's gone to uh, uh, Florida with the uh, uh, college kids, so we needed somebody to come and speak to us. Uh, I took advantage of knowing somebody that was going to be close by, and um, he graciously accepted. I'm going to introduce to you Dr. Mike Justice. Uh, Jeannie and I met him, when Jeannie and I met him, we didn't know each other, but uh, he was the student body at uh, Harding, a student body president at Harding when, uh, when it was our first year at Harding. Uh, he went to med school in Little Rock. He came to Fort Smith and did his residency here. Uh, Jeannie and I kind of followed him and his wife, Elaine, uh, along that path. Uh, Mike was here, Mike and Elaine were here when the congregations merged. Some of you that have been here for that long might remember them. <clears throat> um, but uh, he's been in Searcy in private practice for the last uh, um, 30-something years. He moved there in 1981, I think. Um, he was a good speaker back in 1981. He's an even better speaker now, and uh, I hope uh, everybody will uh, be real attentive to him, and, and I'm going to let him come on up here and, and uh, uh, say what he wants to say, and I'll sit down and uh, be quiet. The- Well, first off, thank you for the invitation to be here. Certainly, we've already experienced the highlight of the morning with uh, the time at the Lord's table. And so anything I have to say will, will just be extra to that. And before we get to the remarks, though, I, I do want to take just a second and bring you um, a belated Thanksgiving. I'm thankful this morning that we have the privilege to be here so that in person, Elaine and I can say to those of you who were here back in the late 70s and early 80s, how indebted we are to you. We were just young kids, young family, uh, with two little children, 
You took us in, you affirmed us, you let us teach classes with you, you let us sing at weddings and funerals with you. Uh, You invested in our children. Uh, We have three who have grown up, they've married faithful spouses, we have nine grandchildren. And so I just wanted you to know that if you ever wonder, there is an incredible return on your investment that you don't always appreciate the time, and we truly were. Uh, the, the the ones who were blessed by those of you who were there, here then, and, and I'm sure you're continuing that with others who've come behind us. I couldn't help uh, but kind of thumb through the uh, bulletin uh, as we were sort of waiting this morning. And while most of your attention is in these big print things, what caught my eye was the little corner in the back that says weekly communications. And it just dawned on me how how incredibly important that is. That, uh, you know, so much of what we do is in social media or um, uh, email or or something that that keeps us connected. And the art of communication is one of those things that, regardless of what form it takes, remains important in the life of the church. Among our presidents, Ronald Reagan was often referred to as the great communicator. And his title, you know, was really earned because he had this incredible ability to connect with almost any audience. He uh, understood the value, the power of a a well-chosen word and how it was shared. But I want to say this morning, with no disrespect to the former president, I think there may be a, a group of equally effective communicators, and many of them are here this morning. And that group would be our mothers. Moms just have this way of knowing what to say and when to say it and how to say it. And it cuts just right to the heart of the matter uh, when they speak. And one of those words that they use probably pretty often is it's kind of an incredible word. It has no vowels. Uh, it just has two consonants that are continually repeated. Now, it can be offered with reassurance, like, shh, just be still, things are going to be okay, you would be quiet now. Or it can be offered as a reprimand. Shh, did you hear what I said? Be quiet, just be still. It's powerful. And amazingly, it's a word that's universally understood by most children around the world. And it's a word that has convinced me that I must be a slow learner because after all these years, I too am still trying to learn how to be still. I thank uh, Michael for reading Psalm uh, 46 for us this morning. That is the, the text from which the remainder of the remarks are based. The historical background for that psalm is a little uncertain, and yet if you listen to it, you picked up on the fact that the language speaks of a time of unrest, a threat of war. And one such time that's often referenced as the backstory to the psalm has to do with the invasion of Judah by Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria in about 700 B.C. And if you want the full account of that, it's in Isaiah 36 and 37. But Sennacherib comes down from the north, and he attacks the cities of Judah one by one until Jerusalem is the final city left in the crosshairs of his military campaign. Hezekiah was sitting as king of Judah at that time, and he had done an amazing thing. He had led the people through this restoration 
of obedience back to God's commandments. And as a result, he infused into the people this renewed hope, this renewed confidence in God's faithfulness. And so as Hezekiah is standing there looking at this Assyrian army that is being amassed to come toward him, I've often wondered, did he ask himself, where are you, God? Where are you? And with that thread of siege and occupation hanging over him, Hezekiah goes into this very fervent time of prayer. And in response to that prayer, God dispatches an angel under the cover of darkness. And the angel destroys 185,000 men who are in that camp. The siege is lifted and Jerusalem is spared. If historians are correct about that, if we can, can truly believe that that's the setting of the psalm, then you could hear it, as Michael read it, as a reprimand. It could have been, back off, pay attention, this is God doing what God does. Or we could hear it as a message of reassurance. And this morning, maybe we could choose to hear it as a reminder that the people of God should be still and should know with confidence that God is our refuge and our strength in times of trouble. Well, in the years that followed that siege by Assyria, Judah was able to dodge invasion by neighboring countries until about a century later, and then along comes Babylonia. And once they are overtaken and Judah is brought into submission, the first order of business is a brain drain. The brightest minds in the Jewish nobility are carted off to Babylon and they're indoctrinated and they're introduced to a very, very different worldview. Among those in that first wave of hostages were three men, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And in a very, very short period of time, their lives were completely turned upside down. Their mailing addresses changed. Their university changed, their mentors changed, their career paths changed. Even their names were changed to Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. With the world spinning out of control, I'm wondering if they too may have asked, God, where are you? Where are you? The scripture doesn't mention the parents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I'm going to make an assumption now. I feel almost certain that those young men were trained in homes where their fathers and mothers were committed to the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. You know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Those were words that were spoken when they were sitting at the table, when they were walking along in the roads. Those were words in the morning prayer. Those were words in the last prayer of the evening. But thanks to the teaching of their parents, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been very, very familiar with how God had worked throughout Jewish history. They knew their heritage because their parents had taught them. They knew about the Jewish time in Egypt, in captivity, and how those people in all those generations had lived and died, longing for stillness, yearning for a day when there would be no more bricks, there would no, be no more taskmasters. Every sunset they prayed that tomorrow would be the day of deliverance, 
And then they would wake up to the same situation and ask God, where are you today? Where are you? God hadn't forgotten them. He just waited 400 years. And then he demonstrated his faithfulness in an incredibly miraculous way for all the world to see. Moses arrives with this message from God, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, 10 plagues follow. But it isn't until the death of the firstborn of Egypt that Pharaoh relents. And so as a result, God leads his people out of Egypt, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And then in an afterthought, Pharaoh thinks, I've just lost my workforce. So he sends his army after them all the way to the shores of the Red Sea. And then, in that moment of indisputable power, God speaks through Moses. And he says, do not be afraid. You stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Only you be still. And with that said, God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through on dry land. The Egyptian army follows. The walls of water take them away. They're never seen again. And God's faithfulness was very much on display that day, not only for his people to see, but for the world around to know that he is who he says that he is. And not only would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have known about that, they would have been very aware of the account of Jerusalem having been spared the Assyrian siege. And so it's likely that Psalm 46 would have been familiar to them. And in their changing world, all of a sudden, be still. You know that I am God. Took on a very, very personal meaning. They knew that God had intervened more than once. They knew their history. When God's people were backed into a corner, there were moments when he stepped in very visibly. And so as they entered Babylon, I wonder if they began to have second thoughts about that, though. Is God going to show up? Is he coming? At that point, there had been no plagues to afflict Babylon. There had been no pillar of cloud. There had been no pillar of fire. There had been no angel in the darkness at night to slay the Babylonian army. And so those young men just waited, trying to be still and very uncertain about what the future might hold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, didn't make it any easier for them. He builds this 90-foot golden image, really, to honor himself. And he says, all right, everybody is going to bow down when I play the music. And if you're disobedient, then here's the punishment. You're off to the blazing furnace. And the choices were very clear for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. On the one hand, they could capitulate. They could bow down. They could put their fingers behind their back and cross them and pretend to deny God and, and stay off of Nebuchadnezzar's radar, save their lives, or... They could just be faithful and obedient, regardless of the circumstances. And maybe in those just few minutes before the music played, the words of Psalm 46 begin to come to mind. Be still. You be still and know that I am God. And then as they're musing, suddenly the music players, everybody around them falls down on their knees. And those three are left 
standing still. There's no way that they could deny the charges. When they were summoned, they were accused of being disobedient, and that's exactly what they were. But as they were presenting their case, these are the words that we remember. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Now, those are powerful words. But they're not the words that Nebuchadnezzar expected, nor that he had any desire to hear. And so he fumed in his anger at their insubordination. He pronounced their punishment, and the hope for rescue for those three men evaporated as they were being pushed into the flames, right up to the last second. In their mind, why hadn't God come? Why didn't he change this? Why didn't he deliver us? We know where God was. He was waiting for those faithful men in the furnace. And he could have taken them home right then. He could have just taken them right away, right to their reward for their faithfulness. But he didn't. In that case, he preserved them so that they could tell their story. And so that they could demonstrate to the world how faithful he is. I think one of the most endearing aspects of that story, and we've all known it, we've heard it a, a million times in Bible classes, but the most endearing part of it is the fact that it has a happy ending. You know, the good guys win because God shows up at the last minute. You know, he snatches them out of the furnace. The bad guys, they learn their lesson, and then everybody lives happily ever after. And that's just the way it's supposed to go. But there is a more poignant question that is left to be answered. Had God chosen not to protect them from the fiery furnace that day, would he have been any less faithful to them? And the thought of trying to deal with that question leaves us feeling a little uneasy, just a little insecure about that. Ironically, I suspect it's Jesus who can help us with that better than anybody else because he understands our insecurity, he understands our anxieties, he understands our apprehensions about the whole situation because he himself was in a situation making a desperate plea for God to intervene in a very stressful and potentially painful situation and asking for a change from what appeared to be an inevitable outcome. Gethsemane. He was trying to be still. He was overwhelmed with anguish. He was sweating drops like blood. And in those moments of distress, Jesus asked in earnest, Father, is it possible for you to intercede? Couldn't we do this some other way? Isn't there a way to satisfy this plan without us having to do what's about to happen? And then Jesus did exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. He attached an addendum to the prayer with the words, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And then he waited, trying to be still. Hours later, when he had been brutally nailed to the cross, 
He was hanging there in pain, hoping for perhaps a different outcome even at that point, although he had already expressed his willingness to do what he was doing. He cries out, My God, my God, where are you? Where are you? Thankfully, we know this story too, don't we? Just as a representative of God was waiting in the furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was a a host of angels waiting for Jesus in the tomb. And the resurrection was the ultimate evidence of God's faithfulness. He was faithful to reclaim his son from death. He was faithful to his promise that he would send the Messiah to redeem the world. He was faithful to the fact that now, by entering through this new covenant with Jesus, both Jew and Gentile had the opportunity to be saved. And so I kind of guess we have to ask, why on this sunny Sunday morning when it's very, very cold outside, why are we talking about the distress of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the angst of Jesus? Aren't there other things that we could be discussing that might be easier for us to consider? But the truth is, with all the years that have come and gone, nothing much has changed. We're still struggling to be still, to know that God is our God, and to believe that He is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help in trouble. Remember, perhaps you've read the book Night by Eli Weissel. Weissel talks about when he and his father were incarcerated in Auschwitz-Birkenau. They were Jewish prisoners at the end of World War II. And on one occasion, the entire camp was forced to witness the hanging of a young boy who was punished for crimes that he didn't commit. And while the whole camp was passing by the dangling body of that little fellow, Weissel remembers someone behind him asking, Where is God? Where is God? And then Weissel admits that deep inside his own spirit, He heard a voice say, there he is. That's God hanging on the gallows. And on that day, the incomprehensible suffering and death of an innocent child threatened to kill the faith in God of those who were watching, who were expecting some sort of miraculous intervention, and yet it didn't come from the hands of a sovereign God. Is it possible that in our own desperate moments that we too might reach a mistaken conclusion that shakes our faith to the core, that God has abandoned us, that he never really cared about us to begin with. I'm not sure how, and I'm not sure when, but it seems to me that we've given ourselves permission to define for God what his faithfulness should look like in our lives. If he loves us, then we expect him to protect us on our terms. If he really loves us, then we expect him to insulate us from hardship, from heartache, from disease, from suffering, from loneliness, from disappointment. If he's truly interested in us, shouldn't he spare us from all the hardships of this life? He's our superhero who arrives just in the nick of time when we run out of options.
And if he's late to the scene, our confidence is shaken. becomes undermined by doubt. It kind of grows with fear. And then if we're not careful in our disappointment, we dismiss him as being unfaithful. But not every example in Scripture of God's faithfulness tells us about folks who were spared suffering. Hebrews 11 is the chapter that we always go to when we look for the honor roll of faith. And as we read down through there, we're encouraged with names like Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab. But if we keep reading, we move on into the second half of that chapter. We discover that there are folks in that hall of fame who didn't experience relief. They didn't experience rescue in their hour of suffering. And because of their faithfulness, they were destitute. They were ridiculed. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. They were stoned. They were even sawn in two. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things that had been promised, but they only saw them and they welcomed them from a distance. In painful, painful stillness, they waited for the reward that would come to them, but only after the suffering in this life. Life doesn't always work out the way we want it to, and it doesn't always work out the way in which we pray. But whether it's three days in a tomb, or three minutes in a blazing furnace, or three seconds in a terrorist attack, God will not forgive us if we remain faithful to him. Jesus had to remind his own followers of this just in days before his crucifixion. They were, they were becoming confused. They were anxious. They were feeling very uncertain about what was maybe ahead for them. And so he says to them, Shh, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come back. And I will take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. By the grace of God this morning, we are not in a fiery furnace in Babylon. We're not on a cross outside Jerusalem. We're not in a concentration camp in Auschwitz. But we may very well be imprisoned by our own worries and fears. Some, in just a little bit, are going to drive away from this building, not sure what lies ahead. Your relationship may be at a crossroad. A job opportunity that you've been waiting on hasn't come through. Grad school's frightening. Debt may be undermining your future. Some of us in the morning may wake up worrying a little bit about our retirement fund shrinking in this current environment. Some of you will sit down at lunch and you'll look across the table at your young children, at their innocence. You're going to wonder how on earth Will God protect them in the years ahead from what's out there? In those moments, that's when we become a bit overwhelmed. We get that anxiety and that that heaviness in our chest, and, and we begin to break out with this cold sweat about the future. But if we listen very, very carefully, in the stillness, 
we can hear the combined voices of mothers of the world saying, Just you wait. You wait until your father gets home. Okay. There are times in my life growing up when that statement would have struck terror in my heart. But I can think, think of no greater words of reassurance this morning than just wait till your father gets home. Because when he's ready, our father is coming for us. He's going to send his son to collect us. But until then, he reminds us to be still in the confidence that he is our father, that he is our refuge of strength, our ever-present help in trouble, and that he's always faithful to those who are faithful to him. The Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about, to walk in faith, because he was one who never knew what the next day was going to bring. And so he wrote to the church in Corinth, and he says, you know, I've been given 40 lashes five times. I've been beaten with a rod three times. I've been shipwrecked three times. I'm always in danger from false brethren. I've gone without sleep. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. I've been cold. I've been naked. The list just went on and on. And then he writes this to the brethren in Rome. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paraphrased, that might sound like, You take a deep breath, you be still, you be faithful, and you know that God is our God. You've been incredibly attentive, but if you'll allow me one more thought, and then we'll be finished. A crowd is standing outside Jerusalem, and the scene is incredibly surreal, similar to the one that Weissel described at Auschwitz. On a cross hangs an innocent young man, condemned for sins that he didn't commit. And as he's dying, there, there's a group that has gathered near the cross, watching in disbelief, really. They'd known the compassion of Jesus firsthand. And with each passing moment, there was this holding out for some sort of miraculous intervention And the question was there, just hanging in the air. Where is God? Where where is God right now? I'm going to suggest to you that one person in the crowd knew the answer to that question. She was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Before Jesus was born, she'd treasured in her heart the message that Gabriel had brought to her, that the baby that she would deliver would be called the Son of God. And she remembered the dialogue in the temple that she'd overheard when Jesus was engaging the teachers there. And he was speaking with words and answers far beyond what would have been expected for his age and level of knowledge. And she remembered how he had confronted those who had challenged him because he asked him, he said, what's easier? Is it easier to heal or is it easier to forgive sins? And before they could even answer, he did both. Mary sensed that from the moment of his birth to the last breath on the cross, that Jesus had never totally belonged to her, that he had always been God's gift to the world. She knew that she'd raised him 
to do God's will, not his own. And with her own heartbreaking, she knew that she and her son had really fulfilled their responsibilities. And so as a result, the mother of the Son of God could be still. And she could trust that God would be faithful to her boy and to his son. They're not here, I think, most of them this morning, but this spring, the high school seniors in this congregation are going to kind of move on. They're going to accept a a new level of responsibility, and you've been responsible for, for raising them in that process. Some of you here, I suspect, are young couples who are about to experience the birth of your first child. Some of us here may be struggling to provide care for aging relatives. Some are going to go home to loneliness after a while, after the death of a spouse, and some this week may even enter the hospital with unexpected illness or or trauma. But whatever the circumstances we are that we find ourselves to be in, this is a morning, this new year, to know that God will not forget us, whatever those circumstances may be, and to be reassured that He loves us. And he's already proven that. We don't have to doubt it. He did it when he sent his son to die for us, to lead us through our own fiery furnaces and through our own tombs back to him. And so maybe this is the morning to stop, to be still, to say to the world with confidence, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then to be baptized and to take hold of God's unchanging hand through all time and walk with him through sickness and health, through poverty or wealth, for better, for worse. Maybe it's just time to be still and remember that God is our strength and our refuge and ever-present help in times of trouble. And so before we leave, if anyone here needs something special that can be offered I know the elders will be here to help. So may we stand and sing.